Okay, I think uh, we'll get started. It's about five minutes past the hour and uh, we have a fair, fairly large number of participants here already. Uh, so uh, welcome uh, to the first meeting of the Fairbank Center's Modern China Lecture Series. Uh, my name is Arunab Ghosh. I teach modern Chinese history here in the history department at Harvard. Uh, before I introduce our speaker today, I thought I'd uh, give you a quick heads up on some of the talks and speakers we have forthcoming uh, so you can mark your calendars um, and, um, and sort of uh, make sure you can join us. Uh, uh, three weeks from now on October 13th, also Tuesday at 4 p.m., uh, we'll welcome Gina and Tam from Trin Trinity University. Uh, a couple of weeks after that, on October 27th, uh, we'll have uh, Feixian Wang from uh, Indiana University Bloomington. On November 10th, uh, we will welcome uh, Kogel Meiskins from the Naval Postgraduate uh, School. Uh, so uh, if you're interested in, in any of uh, our future events, please, please mark your calendars and please do join us then too. Uh, formal announcements will follow in the coming weeks, including uh, instructions on how to register and so on. Uh, so that's just a, a heads up of our future talks. Uh, today, I'm delighted uh, to welcome uh, Dr. Zoran Urbanski, uh, who will be talking about his work on the history of the Sino-Russian border. Uh, Zoran is a historian of Russia and China in the modern era, specializing in imperial and racial entanglements, emigration, and the history of borders. He is currently a research fellow uh, at the German Historical Institute in Washington, D.C. Uh, prior to that, he taught Chinese and Russian history at the universities of Munich and Freiburg. Uh, and he has also been a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Cambridge. Uh, Zoran received his PhD from the University of Constance in 2014, uh, and he has also studied at the European University Viadrina uh, and at uh, Tsinghua University in Beijing. Uh, among his publications are Colonial uh, Wealth Strike, Rusland, China, Japan, and the Ostkinesische Eisenbahn, uh, which is on, on the rail, history of the railroads in the Sino-Russian border. And much more recently, of course, Beyond the Steppe uh, Frontier, a history of the Sino-Russian border. Uh, Zoran is currently uh, embarking on a new project that examines anti-Chinese sentiments in a global perspective, a, a topic that has taken on uh, increasing importance, as you can well imagine. Uh, before uh, I hand things over to him, just a, a quick word on format. Uh, uh, you know, in light of being completely online, we figured that maybe a regular 45-50 minute talk uh, is, is perhaps pushing uh, the limits of people's attention spans. So I've requested Zoran to, to speak for a slightly shorter duration, about 30 to 35 minutes. Uh, and then we'll follow that with a Q&A for roughly the same duration. So we'll plan to be done by about quarter past five, 5.20, thereabouts. Uh, if you have questions, uh, please uh, type them up in the Q&A uh, use, using the Q&A function. Uh, and uh, before, you, before you type up your question, please identify yourself because I will try and uh, I, I, will, I will be reading them out. So it'll be nice to be able to identify who is asking them. That being said, the, this is being recorded and we understand that there might be people who won't be comfortable in identifying themselves. If that's the case, you're of course welcome to stay anonymous. That is not a problem at all. Um, okay, so um, without further ado, over to uh, Dr. Rubansky. Well, thank you so much, uh, Professor Gosh, for this uh, kind introduction and thank you for being uh, invited to speak at the uh, Modern China Lecture Series at Harvard University. Um, let me just uh, start share my screen uh, with you. Um, all right. Um, in my book, the Beyond the Step Frontier, I examined the formation of what was once the longest land border in the world. In addition to its vastness, the Sino-Russian border was special in many ways. It not only divided the two largest European uh, Eurasian empires, it was also the place where European and Asian civilizations met 
where nomads and sedentary people mingled, where the imperial interests of Russia and later the Soviet Union clashed with those of Qing and Republican China and Japan, and when the world's two largest communist regimes hailed their friendship and staged their enmity. During its existence, the Sino-Russian border has taken fundamentally different forms, which make it at one point comparable to colonial borders in Africa and just decades later to the borders between nation states in Cold War Europe. I study this remarkable transformation of the Sino-Russian border with a regional focus on the rolling steppe of the Argun River region near today's Eastern Sino-Russian Mongolian border triangle. The grassy prairie on both riverbanks is perhaps the most suitable border section on which to focus. It constitutes the oldest border segment between the powers to survive subsequent territorial changes. Moreover, the area represents two different sorts of borders. As a water body, the Argun was generally open. People easily navigated the river in boats to transport people, livestock, and goods. Only a short ride away, however, the railroad town of Manjuli, housing customs inspectors and migrant workers, represented a very different social fabric and along with it, a new form of border. Before we discuss the details of the formation of this border during the next half hour, allow me to introduce to you Akadi Janetschik. Akadi was from Borja, a small Soviet town less than two hours by train from the Chinese border. Secret police investigators raided Akadi, Akadi's house on June 17th in 1931. Neither then 46-year-old Akadi nor his wife or their children were at home. Instead, officers encountered four Chinese men at the kitchen table. During their search of the house, inspectors found various gold articles, dresses, white silk, and plenty of tea. The inspectors accused Akadi of illicitly importing foreign fabrics and tea from the Chinese border city of Manjoli, destined for Russian consumers. It was also alleged that he would purchase gold items in the Soviet Union to sell them illegally abroad, that is in China. The border citizen Van Li Chen acted, acted as prosecution witness. Li Chen, a Chinese national married to a Russian woman, had recently observed how some Chinese took clothes stored at Akadi's house in Borsia to transport them to a nearby mine where they exchanged the fabrics for gold and silver. Akadi had many Chinese friends because he was no ordinary Soviet citizen. Born in 1885 in the region, he had worked from 1907 till 1928 with the Russian and later with the Soviet customs at different places and in various positions. His longest post was at the customs office in Manjoli, where he had served for nine years. This was plenty of time to make friends with the Chinese residents in town, as Arkady admitted. He spoke Chinese well and was acquainted with Chinese culture. His job as duties inspector exposed him to Chinese people every day, bestowing upon him a strategic competence that he could use for the benefit of his illicit business. The case of Akadi reveals close contacts between the Chinese and the Russians. One could almost forget that in 1929, that is one year before the police raided Akadi's house, China and the Soviet Union were at war with Manjoli 
as the main battlefield. The social fabric of the sleepy railroad town of Borsia, about 70 miles off the border with China, reveals that around 1930, the border had by no means been hermetically sealed. Numerous Chinese nationals like Ban Li Chen still lived and worked in the Soviet border region. Russians likewise continued to live in the Chinese borderland. Through the autobiographical lens of Russian, Chinese and indigenous people and visiting foreigners and the stories they have to tell, I challenge the great picture of diplomatic histories and top-down interpretations of the Chinese-Russian frontier and the Chinese-Soviet borderland. Listening to the voices of the nomadic herdsmen, merchants and border guards, acknowledging them as historical actors and just approximate their narratives with the stories of the metropolitan elites makes evident that the fate of the imperial frontiers and borderlands was never solely decided in the metropoles. The networks, strategies and social identities of these border people map complicated patterns that stretched across the border. Cossacks, for instance, sought self-determination, became outlaws or emigrated. Akadi and other customs officials, be they Russian or Soviet, uh, uh, Russian or Chinese, uh, worked as part-time traders, um, selling commodities confiscated from smugglers and contraband bazaars. Native nomadic herders represented to metropolitan incursions, uh, responded to, excuse me, native nomadic herders responded to metropolitan incursions by practicing cross-border migration or strategic naturalization. Although China and Russia stretched sketched the oldest section of their boundary over 300 years ago, the executive bodies did not efficiently control flows of, flows of people and commodities on their shared frontier. In many ways, their border remained an open inter-imperial frontier where social and cultural identities of peoples of different ethnic and linguistic roots merged and shifted. Most parts of this imperial frontier space thus remain porous with people and commodities continuing to flow freely. Abilities to stru uh, construct, strengthen, and maintain international boundaries grew over time, partly because of advancement in technology and organization, but also because growing investments allowed resources to control even the remotest peripheries. By introducing modern infrastructure, states authorized a particular form of border crossing and in doing so accelerated formal border making. Such infrastructure projects were built to facilitate the flow of goods, people and ideas through the borderland corridor in a manner suited to their political creators. The metropoles would succeed in tightening their control over the entire borderland significantly in the 1930s, roughly by the time Arkady operated his sophisticated contraband network from his kitchen table. The metropoles did so by applying more severe penal penal penalties to border transgression and by installing much stronger military presence on state perimeters. No longer was just the external state boundary monitored. The borderland had become isolated from the inside and the outside with border zones in which communities and their members were subject to special supervision and individuals' movement into them restricted. 
With the international border firmly sealed, the Soviet party state and the, Manchu and the Manchuku and later PRC governments deported or killed locals holding ties across the perimeter. Reliable citizens gradually replaced allegedly, uh, allegedly disloyal people, even if definitions of the category reliable constantly shifted. Trans traditional life patterns, if they continue to exist, became encapsulated in the new national cultures. Military hostilities also reshaped the border as a metaphorical sphere now displayed as a bulwark against the enemy neighbors in the propaganda on both sides of the river. During the post-war years, despite being marked by increasingly omnipresent friendship rhetoric and bilateral cooperation, border connections evolved as policies no longer established informally but strictly overseen by Moscow and Beijing. Thus, the international cross-border economy and the organized friendship delegation visits to accompany them no longer resembled historically unregulated exchange within the traditional borderland society. Stricter control of flows of people was, however, just one reason for this shift into formality. Many of the new settlers had never crossed the border in their lives. Their lack of language skills and ignorance of the other culture generated indifference towards their new neighbors. The Sino-Soviet split in the 1960s and the 1970s resulted in an arms or in a new arms race at the border, supplemented more by more weaponry and soldiers than had even been assembled during the Manchukuo-Soviet confrontation of the 1930s and 1940s. Transit cargo declined sharply as as a result, and Beijing-Moscow trains were no longer filled with Soviet or Chinese citizens. The Manjoli-Zabaikalsk checkpoint was in fact for some time the only railroad crossing open to travel between China and the Soviet Union. During the split, with only a few hundred passengers crossing the border every week, the overall number of travelers had been very low, even at this very last point of passage. The most striking finding to be gleaned from passenger statistics of that period is the decline in Chinese and Soviet nationals from the train, uh, from the trains. In 1966, Chinese travelers still constituted the absolute majority. In 1969, however, only two Chinese passengers crossed the border by train out of nearly 7,000 passengers in total. Figures for Soviet passengers are similar. During the 1970s, the overwhelming majority of passengers originated from the socialist sister states Vietnam and North Korea. Being close allies of Moscow, both countries sent students and business delegations to the Soviet Union, as long as Beijing allowed, them, trend, uh, allowed their transit through Chinese territory. The traffic statistics thus reflect political relations in East Asia and beyond. They give an account of a highly regulated border that could not be crossed easily by ordinary tourists, world travelers, or even locals. The rift had a lasting influence on more than just the passengers on the international trains. It had dire consequences for the economy and demography of the borderland. In addition, propaganda campaigns revived old motives of infiltration, sabotage, espionage, and disinformation, imbuing the border with new legitimacy as a space of enmity. Yet, with the border now closed for decades, 
and a population no longer familiar with its neighbor, such messages were arguably more effective than ever before. To get a better idea of how isolated the Soviet citizens had become over time from their Chinese neighbors, we can take a look at local newspapers. From 1970 on, China was to appear in the Soviet local press only sporadically. When Moscow anticipated new acts of aggression along the border emanating from Beijing or became aware of new anti-Soviet sentiment in China. Apart from reports on Chinese politics in the state media, Soviet border dwellers learned surprisingly little about China during the period of conflict. Until the late 1950s, however, when official relations between Beijing and Moscow had still been cordial, the case had been quite different. Local papers would, for instance, discuss seemingly amicable joint working life of Soviet and Chinese duty officers at the border stations of Zabakals and Manjuli. The wording, even then, would have sounded stereotypical and crude, yet the descriptions in the story were astonishingly specific and vivid. The people in it had names as did the places on both sides of the border. The reader might not know, uh, the reader might actually know the places and perhaps even some of the people. But an article from, but an article from 1959 was to be the last such report to make explicit mention of dealings between Soviet and Chinese in the borderland. And in fact, would be the final article to name Manjuli for a long time. Though Zabaykalsk and Manjuli lay just six miles apart and one could gaze at the other across the border from the peaks of the steppe hills, the Soviet regional press refrained from mentioning Manjuli and other places in the Chinese border region for the next 26 years. At the beginning of my talk, we have already met Akari and his Chinese friends. Allow me now to introduce yet another local border resident, the Shantar Vera, Vera Zolotaryova. Vera was born in 1938 in Sverdlovsk region near the Ural Mountains, thousands of miles away from the border with China. In 1955, right after her graduation from the railroad, railroad college, uh, Vera arrived in Zabaykalsk to work at the train station. Like most of the new residents, she was still an unmarried teenager. In contrast to the majority of her co-workers, Vera belonged to a limited circle of people allowed to travel to China on duty, even during the Sino-Soviet split. Vera cleared goods and uh, passenger trains to Manjuli. Her passages were tightly overseen and confined to her professional duties. Though she recalled having amiable workmates among the Chinese railroad men, she never questioned the border regime imposed by the state. Recalling one such situation in 1967, she testified, quote, of course, there were still a few contacts. I was friends with one Chinese colleague, but for him, it was dangerous to express such friendship because they mutually spied on each other during the Cultural Revolution, end of quote. Vera's encounters with her Chinese workmates stand in stark contrast to Akari's closely knit cross-border networks. Also the, also the mobility of people like Vera marked a striking departure from the experience of earlier generations of borderland pioneers who could cross the border relatively freely, or at least still remembered those merry times when the border had not been an obstacle, but an opportunity. 
The experience of Vera and her peers of the 1950s and 60s was different. Vera had spent her childhood and teenage years in the Soviet heartland provinces, far away from the Chinese border. So did most Chinese residents who moved in great numbers to the borderland beginning in the 1950s. Because of tight border regulations in place, unlike Vera, most had never set a foot in the neighboring country as the border remained essentially closed for locals as did the border zones for ordinary citizens. Engine drivers and shunters like Vera did far more than clear goods and passenger trains. Sometimes they assumed delicate tasks made necessary by relations between Moscow and Beijing. Zabaykarsk's municipal party committee received instructions from and regularly reported to the uh, Communist Party comp uh, Central Communist Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in Moscow on meetings between Soviet and Chinese railroad men. Let me conclude with two of these encounters. On May 1st, 1972, 12 Manjuli railroad men visited Zabaykalsk. The program included a reception at the station's hotel, the screening of a movie on the Great Patriotic War, and a lunch in the railroad club. The Chinese delegates proposed toasts for May Day, for solidarity, for the friendship between the Chinese and the Soviet people, and for the railroad men of Manjoli and Zabaykarsk. Together, they sang the Internationale. During their brief visit, quote, not a single time did the Chinese guests bring up ideas of Maoism and Mao Zedong thought, end of quote. To the Central Committee in Moscow, this was probably the most important message of the report. Following a similar format, Soviet delegates paid a return visit to Manjoli in the next day to find, quote, a welcoming and friendly reception, end of quote. With the permission of the Chinese authorities, the guests also got the chance to visit Manjuli's Soviet war memorial. Though more sporadic and smaller in scale, in form and in content, these meetings resembled the exchanges of delegations that had taken place under the alliance regime of the 1950s. In times of conflict, however, those meetings fulfilled government's desire to exercise goodwill diplomacy at the lowest level. Moreover, depending on the changing state of diplomatic relations, both sides occasionally rejected proposals for such, such visits. In 1975, the Communist Party leadership in Manjoli declined a request by Zabaykarsk's District Party Committee for a ceremonial laying of wrath for the fallen Soviet soldiers at Manjoli's memorial to mark the 30th anniversary of the so-called liberation of Manchuria from the Japanese. The decision was made in consultation with the central government in Beijing. Zabaykarsk's station master was then informed by the Chinese that the Chinese people did in fact honor Soviet men who had given their lives with annual wrestling ceremonies at memorials and cemeteries. Yet, with the developments of large, Sov of large Soviet military forces, or uh, yet with the deployments of large Soviet military forces on the Chinese border, joint commemorations would be inappropriate. Vera and other railroad workers in Manjuli and Zabaykarsk composed almost the sum of all legal border crossers in the period of conflict. Sometimes these last border crossers were exposed to the risks of political turmoil, 
Sometimes, too, they assumed the roles of weather balloons. As these metaphorical balloons rose through the atmosphere, they gathered important data on behalf of the political leadership in Mos Moscow and Beijing. Their visits were quite accurate ways of measuring conditions on the ground, given the difficult relationship between the two communist regimes. In most cases, however, shunters and engine drivers simply did their jobs. And in allowing them to do so, both governments acknowledged that the border would never be hermetically sealed. Beginning in the 1980s, the border between China and the Soviet Union gradually became permeable again, both through policies adopted by the central governments and local population strategies. A gradual rapprochement between Beijing and Moscow permitted cross-border contracts at first formally, but soon afterwards informally as well. As a consequence of these changes, illicit border trade, cross-border migration, and many other transborder activities were reborn. Yet, although there is no evidence of numerous new Sino-Russian networks active in, in the present, the border has not fully withered away. It continues to exist as an economic, political, cultural, and as you can see in this photograph, even as a symbolic line of division between China and Russia, with many barriers still visible on the ground and engraved in the minds of the borderlanders. Thank you for your attention. Great, uh, thank you so much. That was really fascinating and gave, uh, gave a, a really nice snapshot of the research you've been doing these past several years and of the book uh, as well. Uh, so uh, the floor is uh, basically open. Um, I'm going to uh, try and sort of represent people as they uh, type in their, their questions. Please use the Q&A function. Um, we have one question already, but before we, we get, get to that, I thought I'd maybe abuse my privilege and ask, ask a question uh, itself. Um, I was wondering, as I was reading uh, the, the introduction to your book, and I've read uh, some of the chapters uh, earlier, um, uh, it's sort of the, the especially for the uh, uh, early modern era, the way in which you evoke the border and the not just how porous it is, but how the idea itself is kind of strange in as much as the community there has a certain kind of cohesion that is different from both the metropoles, uh, in this case, the Russian and the, and the, and the, uh, the Russian Empire and the Qing Empire metropoles. Uh, you know, it was very evocative of thinking about uh, sort of the mountain regions that Willem van Schendel talks about in Zomia as these spaces of essentially alternative kinds of uh, economic and political action that is consciously trying to stay away from uh, sort of these more uh, sedentary central agrarian uh, powers, centralized powers. And I was wondering, do you see that kind of resonance or is that too much of a stretch? Uh, or can we think of these, because they're geographically somewhat different. I mean, they're not, these are not upland areas like Zomia typically is. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was wondering if, if you have reflections on that or, or not, and then we'll move on to the next question. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Uh, that's a great question. And I think there is uh, certain similarities in, this, in the sense that this is really a, like a, a place isolated from or different from, from the surrounding areas. And what is most striking in this early period of, of, of the Sino-Russian frontier, which actually lasts well into the first decades of the 20th century in some areas, is that internal borders, that is, let's say, borders between different Cossack hosts or between different banner lines on the Chinese side, often mattered more to the, those people on the ground than the actual state border. Uh, you can see this by 
herding patterns of nomads. That is, they would graze their cattle on both sides of the border, not being interrupted by state authorities. Or uh, by Cossacks, for instance, uh, doing, doing their hay on the Chinese bank uh, and being allowed so by Mongol, by no, local Mong, Mongol authorities, uh, who then only gradually had been replaced by, uh, by, by, by the Chinese authorities. So uh, it, it, really, it really starts to become a, a matter of fact when both sides decide to actually place the customs border on the actual state border. I mean, obviously this was just a snapshot and I focused on, 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 on the, mostly on the latter half of the 20th century, but the book is more, uh, it's also about the early 20th century and going further back to the 19th and, and so on. And what is really the changing is in, in, in the year or around 1900, uh, when Russia decides to open its uh, customs border along the state border. Before that, actually, um, everything east of Lake Baikal had been a uh, free trade zone. So actually things produced in Russia and Russian Far East had to go to customs to go actually to the European part or to Siberia uh, as did Chinese, Chinese uh, commodities. So once they decided to set up this customs border, they started to man the border. They started to impose quarantine restrictions like when there was a plague for instance. And with this, Economically, economic establishment of the border, uh, more and more, it became a matter of fact, even to the local people. Uh, I don't know. Great, great, thank you. Uh, so we have uh, a bunch of questions that are now coming in. So let's just dive in and take the first one, which is from uh, Kenneth Linden, who is a PhD candidate at Indiana University. He says, uh, thank you very much for your talk. Uh, I study the history of Mongolia and North Asian herding history. And I'm curious if you could elaborate a bit more on the role of local herders in the negotiation of the border uh, that you found in your research. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I somewhat touched upon this in, 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 in Arunav's question already, but um, what really, uh, well, actually they, like local nomadic people that is uh, mostly Buryats, but also other, other uh, and Mongol tribes living in that area that I'm concerned with, um, began to fight for the independence in, in the early 20th century. And, um, you know, when, when the Qing, Qing dynasty collapsed and uh, Republic in China was established, um, Mongolia, outer Mongolia became um, an independent and then a Soviet dependent state. Um, but also like other areas of inner Mongolia or present day inner Mongolia tried to, to achieve this independence. And they were actually helped by Russian authorities. So there is this one case I discuss um, in my book uh, by a Mongol nobleman from Inner Mongolia who is um, actually fighting against um, uh, Chinese, uh, Chinese farmers and also Japanese topographers who to uh, actually mapped this area for the Chinese authorities and claiming this land and taking it away, away from the herders and Russian authorities thinking of making use of that, uh, of, that uh, of that person whose name is Totogo. And he's being basically uh, invited to, uh, to Russia and he's seeking asylum, is being granted asylum. And he's basically being parked by the Russians there in case uh, an eruption or an, 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 um, um, a, um, 
uh, people rise, uh, like the, the locals rise, uh, uh, uprising, sorry, <laughs> couldn't find the word, uh, as a uh, local uprising, so they can actually bring him in and use him as a political figure. In the end, he's not being used uh, because uh, there's other people becoming more influential in that region. But for instance, even the, the Chinese side of, of the Agun River is, is independent and recognized by Russia uh, for a couple of years before it's being integrated into China or Republican China again. So there's definitely, there's definitely play a role in that, in that story. Mm -hmm. Great, great, thanks. Uh, so the next question is from uh, Tsing Yuan. Uh, and uh, they're looking at, at a different geographical direction, I guess. They want to know, how would you compare this border crossing with the one at uh, Sufenha that goes to Vladivostok? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, actually, when I, when I uh, uh, started uh, looking at um, choosing a region, because, I mean, I also thought you could actually write a book about the entire border, but then it becomes very complicated if you really want to go to the, uh, if you do want to do like a microhistory and look at, individuals uh, on who lived at this border, especially subaltern spheres, uh, people who usually didn't leave any traces in the archives. So I decided to just look for one section and another suitable section obviously would be Sufenkhe uh, and Gradyekovo, uh, the other side is called on, on the Russian side, the other end point of this railroad that was constructed by Russia through Manchuria in, uh, in the early 20th century. But it's different in the sense that um, this, uh, the Russian territory became Russian only in the mid, uh, in, in the mid 19th century, when basically uh, the uh, governor general of, of, of Eastern Siberia conquered this territory and it, uh, in the treaties of Aigun and Beijing, it was ceded to the, uh, to the Russian empire. And apart from that, so the story would be shorter there, uh, but apart from that, it's also a different ethnic uh, uh, it's a different ethnic uh, pattern. You won't have um, nomads there. You would still have uh, indigenous people there, but um, you would also have many more Chinese on the, on the Russian side living there for quite a long period, long before this actually became uh, uh, Russian. So um, it would be a slightly different story. And um, uh, it would uh, essentially mean that um, other than the region I'm looking at, um, where actually uh, the ethnically dominant groups of both empires, that is the Great Russians and the Han Chinese, come in really late. I mean, some Russian Cossacks come in by the seven, uh, seven, uh, 18th century, but still it's heavily dominated by uh, indigenous people. Uh, this, this was a different story there, I would argue. Actually, before uh, I, we go to the next question, I was wondering maybe if you could tell us a little bit more also, partly motivated by your answer, uh, you know, by the question and then you answer the question, uh, provide a sense of sort of uh, what, the, what the research process was like, what kinds of sources were you able to draw upon. Okay. I presume some of the photographs you showed us, you took yourself. Um, so maybe even just sort of give us a sense of, did you, did you travel these areas to get a sense of the border itself today? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that would be very interesting to, to try and understand, especially because you're doing sort of both sides. Uh, mm -hmm. You're trying to give weight to both sides. Yes. But yeah, great question. And uh, yes, I spent quite some time in, in, on both sides of the border. Uh, I studied uh, Chinese in Harbin, for instance, which is not right on the border there, but it's, it's in Dongbei, so to speak. And I, I spent more than a year in the Russian Far East uh, in the archives. I wish I could have spent the same time in Chinese archives as I was able to spend in, China, in Russian archives. 
Um, I mean, even Russian archives are challenging, um, but they are compared to Chinese archives um, much more open. And also, it's not just uh, the policy of open archives or closed archives or whatever the current uh, policy of access to archives is uh, in, in China. It's also about the uh, preservation of documents and uh, the level of, of uh, bureaucratization at that border. So I would argue that even the documents I was able to see, uh, bureaucracy on, on the Chinese side was at least until uh, the 1950s, which was much thinner than on, 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 on the Russian side. But um, the good thing about borders when you do border research is even if you, are, if you just have a lim limited access to archives um, on one side, you get a lot of correspondence ending up in, in, in Russian archives from China. Or I went to National Archives here in College Park um, near DC, where you had uh, you have U.S. consular files, United States had the consulate in Harbin, Germany had a consulate in Harbin for some time. So you can also use these kind of archival documents. And as it came up, maybe a bit in my talk, I used uh, various other sources, mm -hmm. including oral history. I did interviews with locals. I used newspapers, uh, visual sources, ethno ethnographic accounts and so on and so forth. So it's actually, it's, it's, it's very tricky because there's even not many local histories like written by local Chinese historians or Russian historians, uh, but there's lots of materials to actually dig, dig deep. You just need mm -hmm. to find uh, time and... So Tsingyuan has a, has a follow-up uh, comment yeah. slash question on, on sources and materials. So I'll, I'll jump to that and then, then follow the sequence as we have it. He, he, uh, Tsingyuan is asking, with regard to the Russian primary sources in the late 1990s, the Institute of Far Eastern Studies of the Russian Academy of Sciences was publishing year-by-year -year accounts of relations during the 17th century. Uh, is that, how is that project going? Is it still ongoing? Do you know? Uh, can you... I, Something was interrupted. Can you just read, oh, so I'll last... read it? I'll, yeah. I'll read it again. Yeah. So the question is, uh, with regard to Russian primary sources in the late 1990s, mm -hmm. the Institute of Far Eastern Studies of the Russian Academy of Sciences was publishing year-by-year -year accounts of Russo-Chinese relations during the 17th century. Mm -hmm. uh, how is that project project going? I'm not aware that this is continuing, this project, but there is being uh, constantly pro uh, published uh, Kind of digests of archival materials uh, from Russian archives and, and from the Russian Far East by by the Academy of Science, the branch in Vladivostok, for instance, on customs, uh, different customs posts, and there is this a uh, huge uh, collection of the history or edited like a series of edited volumes on the history of the Russian Far East uh, from from its beginnings, that is the mid nineteenth century. Uh, until the post-Soviet time, but not that I'm aware of uh, this archival documents mm -hmm. collection that this is, this is being continued, but I'm not sure. Great, great, thanks. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, next question, uh, and you get, a, you get a nice pat on the back. It starts by saying, uh, this is from Lyle Goldstein, a fascinating presentation, well done. Uh, to my understanding, two bridges have been completed over the Amur during 2019, uh, which is an important milestone. Do you believe that economic development of frontier regions is accelerating dramatically? Uh, do you have additional evidence? Mm -hmm. Yes, I've also heard about those bridges uh, and they have been called half bridges for quite a long time because the Chinese uh, started to build them uh, quite a long time ago, but Russia was reluctant to finish them. And um, I mean, there has been since the 1990s, since uh, the border was almost overnight or became open again, 
uh, a very strong exchange, economic exchange. And you might even argue that to some degree, Chinese merchants saved the Russian, then already Russian Far East from starvation and from economic hardship when the Soviet economic system broke down uh, overnight. That is uh, subsidies to transport, uh, cargo transport, uh, stopped to exist and products uh, like food and everything else became uh, very expensive uh, all of a sudden. So um, since then, you had this period of wild inter-exchange where not, nothing much was regulated. You had wild bazaars again in uh, Siberian and Far Eastern cities with uh, Chinese traders. Then you had also uh, Russians engaging in the shuttle trade. But these things became more regulated over time. And um, until 2014, and we are just talking now on local or regional border trade, not about the, the big economic projects, like let's say the oil and gas deals between Beijing and Moscow um, or timber, lumber production and uh, export to China. Um, until 2014, uh, China was really a place to go for local Russians or for, for Russians at Vladivostok, Khabarovsk and other, other cities uh, along the border. But this really changed in 2014 with the, uh, with the war in Ukraine and the collapse of the ruble in, um, in comparison to other currencies, including the renminbi. So China became much more ex uh, expensive as a market um, to buy from or to use services like a hairdresser uh, or repair your car. This was really very common at the time that you would repair your car on China, going to China, for instance. Um, but Nowadays, it's actually the other way around. It's not that Chinese using Russian services so much as Chinese tourism to China to Russia has become very common uh, these days. I was I was uh, luckily in 2019 when before COVID, um, I was in Irkutsk and other places, and it, it was March and it was quite filled with Chinese tourists. So not a major travel season, and um, you can also see it when when you take a plane from. Uh, Beijing to let's say Vladivostok, it's usually 80-90% Chinese in, in the plane and just 20 or 10% Russians. So uh, I, I'm not sure about the bridges because um, bridges can also be, you know, you have a Schlagbaum, uh, you would say, call it, like, like, I don't know, in Russian, you, it's a German and a Russian word, uh, basically imposed, you can, cr you can close this border as much as you can stop a, a hovercraft or a ferry from crossing a river. So um, I don't think that this will significantly increase uh, local border traffic, um, but it's a good symbol that finally these uh, bridges uh, become open again, or th these bridges are being finished and uh, travel is becoming more easy. Um, yeah. Great. Well, and uh, obviously we don't we don't have to talk about that now, but I think the the what is implicit in what you're saying, I guess, is to ask then how has COVID nineteen affected a lot of this tourism, right? Much in the way in which we talk about it in Europe and other places. But, mm -hmm. but hold off, I have a lot of other questions. So I think we should okay. talk about them. So yeah. uh, the next question is from uh, Kaya Tersmet, uh, who asks, uh, who says, thank you for your talk and your research, Dr. Rubansky. Can you tell us anything about the Chinese and Russians or Russian Soviet notions of borders? Uh, did these notions overlap? If so, what origins do they share? And if they didn't overlap, how are differences smoothed out? Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Uh, my understanding is that uh, Chinese notions of borders have 
much longer be the notion of a zone rather than an exact or precise line. You can see this actually also with the Kalon or the Chinese border post that they were not necessarily placed on the border, but yet different layers uh, to them. This was different with a, uh, on the Russian side from, from very, very early on when, they, uh, when the Russians started to um, erect uh, Cossack settlements, that is mostly, it's not like a, nowadays that you have a guard tower, uh, like a, a tower where soldiers would just look across with their binoculars, but it's more, it was more villages where people were living uh, and having like cattle and doing agriculture to like for, for, for life. They were part-time guarders, so to speak, or were, uh, were guarding the border part-time. Those were really placed on, uh, along the border from the very first uh, first uh, first uh, moment, and I would say that um, during the 20th century, um, Russia or the Soviet Union had quite a number of inventions that were later adapted uh, first by Manchukuo and then to some degree also by uh, the. People's Republic of China. Uh, for instance, uh, as I mentioned in my talk briefly, um, the, uh, the Soviet Union introduced in the late 1920s uh, so-called border zones. Uh, that is uh, a second, uh, like a zone going running along the border, which is uh, to which access is restricted to ordinary citizens. So you need to either live in there or have a, sp a special permit. Even so, even even you are a Soviet citizen, doesn't mean you can go there. I actually grew up on the Iron Curtain between Germany and Germany. And there was the same, yet the 30 kilometers or maybe 20 miles of uh, no access and actually where villages had been demolished, uh, people were moved out, not everybody, but it was thinned out to some degree. And this also existed um, in the Soviet Union starting from the late 1920s. And then a similar thing was adopted in Manchukuo in the mid 1930s. And um, to some degree, you have also have a border zone in in, uh, in, in China, uh, even in the present time, that you when you go to these, I didn't talk about them, but you still have Russian Cossacks living on the Chinese side. When you visit these areas, you have to register with the local police. Mm -hmm. Great, great, thank you. Um, the next question is from a grad student in the history department here at Harvard, Dong Yuting. Uh, she's asking, I wonder whether it is possible to know more about the residents of this border in the 1920s and 1930s. Are they Russian diaspora? Uh, how do the local residents influence the perception of the border on the Soviet side? Uh, and then she thanks you for a wonderful presentation. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yes, I mean, uh, talking about diaspora, uh, obviously um, after the Russian Revolution, there was a, um, a quite a significant exodus of Russians um, emigrating uh, mostly to Europe, um, but also to, uh, to China and Harbin, uh, the city, the provincial capital of Heilongjiang province. Uh, which had been uh, founded by Russian, uh, like by, by this railroad company, uh, really became uh, a huge, uh, uh, like a, a significant uh, city for those people emigrating uh, to the east. Uh, but there were also rural communities like the Cossacks, uh, who already before the Russian Revolution um, had kind of uh, crossed the border regularly for their economic. Uh, uh, for, for their for their agriculture um, enterprises, um, they would emigrate um, in significant numbers, especially during the collectivization of the late 1920s, when basically uh, the Soviet government looked, took the livestock uh, from them. Uh, so they they emigrated in great numbers, and um, these people, um, to some of them, I mean, 
they are now mixed because they have intermarried with Chinese, but the, the descendants of these people still live, live, in, uh, live in those areas and have become actually a major tourist attraction uh, for Chinese, uh, for Chinese uh, who are interested in to see uh, Russia without having to cross uh, the border. Um, but how did they influence um, uh, the perception of the border on the Soviet side? Um, well, the Russian emigres were uh, seen as the enemies. Uh, actually, uh, if you look at Russian propaganda or Soviet propaganda from the 1920s and also from the 1930s, the main enemy in, in the booklets and the newspapers are not the Chinese or are not the Japanese. They become later the major enemy uh, as of the mid early 1930s but are the white Russians who crossed across the, rea the rea so in, their, in their terminology, the reactionaries. They had to be fired, they had to be, uh, they, needed, they needed to be destroyed to make this border safe again. That's very interesting, yeah. Um, the, the next question we have, which takes us in a, in a different but very interesting direction, uh, is from Concepcion Lagos, uh, who says, hello, I'm asking from the Philippines. Can you talk a bit about gender and religious conversion uh, uh, during in, uh, intermarriages? Uh, would you say religious conversions are equally distributed among brides and grooms from across nationalities? Or, or are some data skewed towards a certain uh, gender converting to their partner's religion? Mm -hmm. Very interesting question as well. Uh, a very short answer. Um, almost uh, when there was an intermarriage, it was mostly Russian women uh, marrying a Chinese man and the Chinese men become in Russian Orthodox. That's, that's really 90% of the cases, I would say. Okay, thanks. Um, another question that we have is from Martin Fromm, who says, who asks, uh, did the hardening of the border have an impact on the environment in the region? That is, did evolving political relations shape ecological conditions in the area? That's a very good question. Uh, I would say yes to some degree, uh, as is again with the German-German border, which is now in like a national, not, not really a national park, but it has become an ecological zone because it had been preserved. So when there was no agriculture, no industry. So uh, nowadays you can cycle uh, along it. Um, uh, you can cycle along the uh, border between China and Russia nowadays, but I would say uh, it has not been become, it, ha it has not been as developed as it would have been developed if it were not the border, the state border. Um, and there were actually um, problems to, with that because uh, since many parts had not been developed uh, to, uh, to, to, uh, to uh, intensively, so to speak, there were a lot of forest fires, for instance, uh, more, more, more northern parts. And there were attempts by Chinese and Soviet authorities still to the, to, uh, at the, during the period of friendship to fight those fires. Um, uh, with uh, common sort of uh, or with uh, kind of cooperation like the fire like a fire planes soviet fire planes would help uh, extinguish chinese forest fires so to speak yeah just uh, listening to your answer i was also wondering and then again in the book you talk about how extreme the the climatic conditions uh, are you know partly the, the, the there are the terrain is interesting you have some hills and then you have the, the rivers are such an important conduit mm -hmm. but you talk about the extreme temperatures where uh, in the summers it can go up to 35 degrees centigrade i think you say and in the winters it can be minus what 30 40 even colder mm -hmm. so the river freezes and the river then becomes a different kind of um, uh, it's not sort of you flow along the river but you can just cross the river wherever you want in some ways mm -hmm. i was wondering so in light of uh, more, the more recent uh, 
sort of climate related concerns that we all have uh, and what we're seeing in California now with the forest fires. Um, do you do you sort of uh, do you see that these kinds of things having a major impact on the uh, on sort of economic, cultural, and environmental life in the region? Uh, you mean the climate change? Whether yeah, has, climate change yeah. broadly speaking, because it's gonna it's gonna affect uh, these areas yes. that have extreme extreme weather patterns, perhaps more. Well, uh, you have increasingly. I mean, you always had floods in that in that region, but uh, and you have, but you increasingly have uh, floods over the. I think. There was a big flood in 2013 and then, then again in 2019. And, uh, you know, before that, it was maybe every 20 years. And now it seems to become uh, the intervals becoming shorter and shorter. And of course, uh, floods uh, create um, problems uh, with, uh, with, with that border. Um, but what I would say, I mean, in, it's not a permafrost region like the north of Siberia, which is struggling a lot now, or it's not such a, uh, it, it's not densely forested by, like it has no dense, uh, no thick forest, at least the part the region I'm talking about, uh, because you have lots of forest fires as well in, in Siberia. So these areas are more affected by that. What I would say is a big problem or was a big concern even now that, uh, the relationship between uh, China and Russian, the Russian Federation is, uh, is, a, is a form of partnership and in, in some degrees even an alliance, uh, one, may, one may argue, um, is uh, the ecological impact uh, or environmental impact of industrialization in China. There was a huge spill of a chemical plant in Jilin province that affected uh, the Songhua River and then also the Amur River. And this was a major uh, issue for the local or regional population in the Russian Far East, since uh, obviously also for the Chinese people living along those rivers, but it became an international problem uh, once this dirty water basically entered the Russian territory. Mm -hmm. yeah. Great, thanks. Uh, the next question is from uh, Tatiana Linkoeva, who says, congratulations, Zoran, uh, from Ian Alvaro. My question, in your understanding, what was the role of the Japanese Empire's expansion into northern Manchuria in the, in the changing nature of the Sino-Soviet border? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a very good question. And I would say uh, uh, the major, uh, the, the most decisive factor was really this militarization. Uh, Soviet, the Soviet Union, although they had this uh, conflict or even war in 1929 uh, with the uh, warlord uh, Zhang, uh, about the control of the over this uh, colonial railway, uh, and um, it was the Soviet Union was never really concerned um, uh, or afraid of an attack uh, of this warlord on on its borders. This changed uh, with uh, Japan occupying the Chinese Northeast. Um, there was really this fear of a two-front war uh, that is uh, that the Germans might attack in Europe and the Japanese might attack on. On, on its Asiatic borders. And this led really to an investment into, in, into military infrastructure, into sending troops to that region. And this in turn helped to actually establish border control. So this was the first time the government was willing to spend so much money. I mean, we're talking about several thousand miles of uh, sparsely inhabited territory. It takes, I mean, we all know now the US-Mexican border and how hard that this is to, to patrol even with modern technical equipment, equipment. It ne you need a lot of money uh, and you need a lot of resources to do that. And this was the first time actually that the Soviet Union really uh, put an effort in 
staffing this border efficiently to, to, to control it. And this in turn had an impact on the networks across the border. And of course, uh, the Japanese side would again employ those um, uh, Russian emigres, uh, the white Russians, so to, uh, so to speak, as their own uh, kind of, uh, they, they, they were enlisted in their army, they were sent as spies there. So there was really this, this, uh, this um, Russian, Russian rivalry in this uh, Soviet Manchukuo or Soviet Japanese rivalry as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to try and curate a little bit because we have some questions I think that link up directly to sort of this more uh, 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 sort of international history mm -hmm. and sort of uh, power politics and so on. So Professor Lyle Goldstein um, has, has a follow-up question uh, that I think is again about sort of international relations. So I'll, I'll jump to that and then come back to an earlier question. Uh, so Professor Goldstein says, who's, who's from, uh, who's at the Naval War College, he says, you have a very unique perspective on the Sino-Soviet conflict. Uh, and, I, and I found your anecdote regarding railway workers from the early 1970s really fascinating and insightful. Uh, in general, what is your opinion on the primary cause of the Sino-Soviet conflict? Uh, and in your opinion, does the legacy of the conflict uh, or the split weigh heavily on the relationship today? Mm -hmm. Well, that's an excellent question again. Um, uh, I mean, uh, if you talk about uh, the Genbao or Damansky incident in uh, March 1969, I think I didn't do any research on that, um, but uh, I think it's it's uh, it's agreed upon among Russian, Chinese, and Western historians that it was uh, China attacking uh, the Soviet Union in that case. Uh, I mean, we can we could go into details here why that was, but um, let's let's uh, put this aside. But um, I mean, um, I would say. Uh, the legacy, talking about the legacy, it's very interesting. I mean, uh, the, uh, we had recently the anniversary in 2019, 50 years of a, a, a Genbao or Damansky incident. Um, and it was very different from the 40th anniversary, 2009. And uh, in 2009, it would be still publicly, publicly commemorated in the Russian Federation, um, you know, with uh, reports in the press with museums special, uh, preparing special exhibitions, TV doing a special reports on that, but it was really muted uh, this time. So it, it was really, uh, I don't know whether it was an official directive coming from somewhere, but it was really the goal to, uh, the, 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 you, could, you could really see the message that we don't want to commemorate this, uh, this, uh, this incident because it could, um, uh, complicate the relations. Uh, if you talk about locals or speak, or speak to locals, obviously they remember that very strongly. Uh, you will have lots of jokes, Soviet jokes still running through Russian cities uh, about a, chi a Chinese invasion that are related to that incident and, uh, to earlier times when many, uh, several hundred thousand Chinese lived in the Russian Far East uh, until, until the mid 1920s. Um, so this is still there but not um, on, on the official political discourse, so to speak, in this uh, level, yeah. Great, great, thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, the next question we have is from uh, Leo Chunhao, uh, who says, uh, from the University of Chicago, who says, first of all, thank you for your speech on the Sino-Russian border. I wonder uh, the purpose of the railroad in, what the purpose of the railroad was in shaping the life experience of the border residents on both sides uh, and the recognition of Soviet and ROC on the border definition in the 1930s. So mm -hmm. as, as I guess the Nanjing government is formed. Mm -hmm. um, um, yes, uh, well, the, what, what really, 
I mean, I, I talked a bit about infrastructure and how infrastructure changed the nature of the border. Um, in a way, this railroad made this border much more accessible for, for the political centers in the sense that you could travel there easily, you could erect customs posts, but you also could channel uh, the transport of people um, and commodities more easily. Um, and by the, by the channeling, also controlling it better. I mean, if, uh, like if you think about customs and quarantine. Uh, but uh, at the same time, this uh, railroad also brought in many new people uh, that I would argue the governments uh, on both sides didn't like very much coming in. Like a lot of migrant workers, um, trappers, like hunters, um, um, there was this uh, Siberian marmot, it's, it's an animal uh, which, uh, which sells, uh, uh, which skin uh, sells uh, expensively on the, or sold expensively in the world market. And um, it was hunted down by uh, local people before that, but it really, uh, with the opening of this railroad, it became a world market commodity. It was sold in Leipzig and Paris uh, for fashion. Uh, but this again, in turn, created uh, all kinds of problems. Uh, there was this great Manchurian plague um, in 1910, 1911. Um, there always had been uh, cases of plague uh, every year in some uh, villages, but it never spread. Um, I mean, talking about COVID, it never spread uh, so fast and had so devastating um, consequences. And it was precisely this, this floating population from both sides that uh, was carrying this uh, disease all along the railroad and um, uh, causing most deaths actually in Harbin. I think um, in Harbin alone, more than 20,000 people died um, uh, during, during that winter and in total 60,000 people. So yeah, uh, it, it, was, uh, it, uh, it created things that the government who decided to build that railroad didn't intend um, with by building it basically, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Uh, sort of shifting focus uh, in some ways to uh, the creation of Mongolia and the place of Mongolia in this history itself. Um, there's an anonymous attendee who's asked, uh, did the independence of Mongolia in the 1920s change the dynamics of the Sino-Russian border in the Manjoli region? So exactly narrowly where, you, where you're working mm -hmm. with this. Yes, uh, that's a great question. And I would say yes, uh, definitely, um, because um, uh, before that, it, as I said, it was like an, mostly an open border and there was um, a huge uh, market or a fair every fall near a monastery on, on present day the Chinese side where herders uh, from all three different states as they exist today, that is uh, Mongolia, China and Russia would come and exchange um, or sell their horses, their cattle, livestock and buy uh, all kinds of um, uh, produced, uh, fabricated items from the Russians and the Chinese. And uh, with uh, Mongolia becoming an independent and then it, uh, state and then as the Soviet satellite, uh, there was also a border created between outer Mongolia and China. And this interaction kind of uh, uh, kind of didn't stop immediately, but decreased over over time, and um, and again uh, 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 for 
during, as I, as I mentioned, many, many Cossacks emigrated to China, but also many, many nomadic people from, from the Russian Empire who lived in that region uh, emigrated to China. But often they emigrated actually to the outer, outer Mongolia first and then to China. Uh, and this became no longer possible at some, at some point in time. So it had, it had a huge impact on, on the economy and also on people's lives in that region. Okay, great. Um, I think we have uh, one other um, sort of, it's a comment again from someone who asked a question earlier, Tsingyuan, who has a comment slash question that ties into sort of more contemporary politics. Uh, so I'll just read it out very quickly. Uh, and then maybe that'll be, you know, we are approaching 5.15, so maybe this can be the last last question, unless uh, maybe uh, I'll invite, if there's, uh, you know, anyone who wants to ask the final question, then they're more than welcome to, to, to type it up. Otherwise, we'll consider this to be the, the, the final point. Uh, sort of bringing you, dragging you back into contemporary politics, as it were. Uh, so the question is, uh, there have been uh, prolonged and massive demonstrations in Kalvaros over the imprisonment of the governor by Putin's government. Uh, to what extent uh, is the fact that the governor belonged to Jironovsky's ultra-nationalist party um, uh, that has made sort of anti-Chinese uh, nest as a, as a central platform, I guess. Uh, how is that linked to perhaps uh, increasing Chinese economic dominance in the region? So how do, how do sort of regional and then central politics play into this? Uh, mm -hmm. And then and, and connect with with sort of China's growing dominance uh, mm -hmm. economically. What are, do you have any thoughts? Well, it's an interesting question. I actually, uh, I, I'm obviously aware of those uh, protests in Khabarovsk and uh, through friends and and also obviously through the media, but I've never seen them as anti-Chinese um, protests. Uh, and uh, you're right that uh, the LDPR, uh, the Liberal Democratic Party of the Russian Federation, as it's called, Zhirinovsky's uh, party, is ultra-national, is an ultra-nationalist party. But I think uh, the reason why they decided to uh, elect this person was more about not electing uh, United Russia or Yedina Russia. Often it's, uh, you either choose the communists or the nationalists as an alternative to P Putin's official government party. So I wouldn't say even if he got elected by a majority of voters that these people are necessarily more nationalistic than they are in other regions of the Russian uh, Federation. It's more about local politics. And um, um, I mean, there is anti-Chinese sentiment, um, but it's not, I wouldn't say it's stronger in, in Khabarovsk, um, especially because Khabarovsk as compared to other cities along the border especially Blagoveshensk, which is another big city right at the border, is much less exposed to Chinese, uh, like in, as, 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 as workers, as tourists, as, as entrepreneurs, because there is simply no city across mm -hmm. on the Chinese side. And uh, for long, there was no border crossing. I mean, there's now a possibility to cross the border, but it's not, not like in Blagoveshensk where you have basically uh, two cities of the same size and people going back and forth uh, very often. Um, it's actually much less, uh, Chinese are much less visible in Khabarovsk, for instance. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so we, we have, we've received two more questions. I guess what else, maybe what we can do is we can take them, I'll just read them out together so you can answer mm -hmm. them together and then you know we can wrap up over the next four or five minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, so the first question is from uh, Sergei Ivanov, uh, at the Vladivostok Institute of History who asks, uh, Zeran, historically, Russia borders border countries that very, Russia borders countries that vary significantly in terms of culture and economy. Uh, since Russian governance is very centralized, did you explore how Russian and earlier Soviet governments tried to localize unified rules to control cross-border activity with China? For example, as I know, 
in the last 20 years, Russian, custom, Russian customs uses European prices to detect if the transported commodity is underpriced. Uh, this practice invoked a lot of court cases between traders and Siberian Far Eastern customs offices, as the commodity prices of Chinese products are lower than European prices. It's a, a fairly technical question, but mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, uh, hi, Sergei. <laughs> um, thanks for the question. Actually, I have no answer to that. I, I'm, I must pass. Honestly, I, I, I'm not so much um, concerned with the co uh, contemporary period, and I would have to make wild guesses, which I don't want to. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. Okay, so then the the, the last question. Uh, it's a, I think it's from the same anonymous uh, uh, questioner. Uh, who's following up on the question about Mongolia. So we'll conclude with that. Um, they ask, on a macro scale, did the creation of Soviet satellite states like Mongolia for a while and Tuva, uh, and hence the shortening of the direct Russia-China border link, I guess, because you have a third country now in the middle, did that impact or complicate uh, a broader Russia-China approaches to the border? Um, I would say... It makes actually things quite much easier because there's now less, possi less possibility for conflict or less. I mean, Mongolia is kind of stuck in, in the middle. Uh, Tanatuva is now part of, this, uh, of, of, of Russia, obviously, but um, uh, it's more like, I would say, uh, Mongolia is, is, in, is in this unfortunate role of being a double buffer state between China and between uh, the Russian Federation. And, uh, Obviously, politically and economically, fortunes have shifted. I think until the 1990s, um, early 1990s, 80% of uh, foreign trade was, was, with, was with the Soviet Union. And now it's, I think, 90% is going to China. Um, so it's, it's a very different story today. But precisely because th there is something, a, a third country in the middle that uh, kind of helps to ease tensions. And I would actually say, um, there is an attempt on both sides of the border that is by both uh, governments, um, that is by Putin and Xi Jinping, um, to kind of diminish the role of the border regions in their uh, bilateral affairs, since they may, they kind of create more possibility for conflict than for kind of uh, for harmony, I mean, and there, at, at least at the moment in time, I mean, there's, as we all know, there's a lot of overlap economically speaking, politically speaking, geopolitically speaking uh, in both countries. And they don't want to see, uh, to play, um, let those regions play a too heavy role um, in, in, in their bilateral relations. And if you look at numbers, at the sheer numbers uh, of the economic significance of these regions. Um, I would argue that um, until the early 20th century, the border regions, and by, by those I mean the provinces uh, directly uh, on the border, um, took the lion's share in, in, in economic significance of, of their bilateral, bilateral trade uh, balance. But now it's not, it's not the case anymore. So uh, it's more between regions lying further inland, that is uh, oil being uh, rigged in, in other provinces of the Russian uh, Federation or things being produced, not necessarily in Heilongjiang province, but let's say in Jilin province or in Liaoning or in Shandong. Um, so it's, it's more significant. Obviously these, these direct provinces have more interaction and um, as compared to other provinces, maybe also more turnover, but it's not this significant 
uh, role anymore as they did play in the past. Thank Great, you. thank you. It's yeah. interesting that uh, listening to your talk, it's sort of, there's an interesting parallel perhaps that can be explored potentially productively about sort of Nepal's position between China and India mm -hmm. and the ways in which it has promoted at times bilateral relations. And these days, it's quite the opposite. It's increased tensions and Nepal is stuck, but it's also doing, I think, um, a, a fairly aggressive job of, uh, of playing one side or the other. So mm -hmm. I think there's an interesting sort of parallel there in terms of a buffer state that then gets caught between two much larger levels. Well, yeah, but I, like Mongolia tried a long time to actually bring in third, third countries. Uh, I think Japan is still mm -hmm. until today the biggest donor of uh, aid, of, like development policy. Uh, then you have the Canadians in, in the mining. Uh, the Americans have also like a strategic interest in that region, but that didn't really work out. I mean, they tried it uh, kind of to neutralize, to in, in a way to neutralize China and Russia to bring in third countries. And but it's I would I would say it's it's still a very it's very much dominated by Russia and China there at the present day situation. Well, yeah. No. So, so thank thank you so oh, much. I mean, as, right. Right. As, as you as you can see, I mean, you had. Uh, you had so many so many questions. This this talk was, was both fantastic and so generative of, of uh, you know questions that take us in uh, so many different directions. So uh, thank you again, uh, and you. on behalf of uh, all the people attending, uh, thank you thank you from them, and thank you to all of them for joining us. Uh, I hope you'll join us again in three weeks uh, when we host uh, Gina and Tam. I think uh, I'm not blanking on the date, but it's three weeks from now. Um, and uh, and once again, thank you so much for for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me, and thank you for the great questions. Yeah, thank you.